Welcome to Radio Uninvited. This is Asya Hussein with Bob Johnson. We are talking to Kate Zernike about her new book, The Exceptions, Nancy Hopkins, MIT, and the Fight for Women in Science. Welcome to the show, Kate. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you. Tell us a little bit about Nancy Hopkins. I, I know you you follow her throughout the story. What inspired you to take on this particular story? Were you, were you were at the Globe? Yeah, I was at the Globe and uh, I was a reporter at the Globe. I was covering higher education and I got a tip from some editor in the newsroom who said you should call this woman Nancy Hopkins. It's something about MIT and discrimination. And this was in March of 1999. And, you know, I was 30 and felt like my career was going pretty well. So I thought, okay, like how, you know, discrimination, how bad can it be? Right. Um, and I think I thought there was probably going to be a lawsuit or something. Instead, when I called Nancy Hopkins, she told me that, in fact, um, MIT was going to admit discrimination, which in journalism is kind of a man bites dog story. And she said that they were doing this because these women had gotten together and produced a report that looked at all the disparities and the report combined data and science. And so they looked at things like lab space and salaries. And I just love the idea that these female scientists had sort of had appealed to their own scientific sense of inquiry to look at this. And that that's what had persuaded MIT to make this admission. That's wow. uh, that's so fabulous. <laughs> they used the science. Yeah. You know, MIT's motto, yeah, MIT's <laughs> motto is, is mind and hand. And you really saw both at work here. Right. I knew very little about Nancy when I started, when I reported that story. I mean, I, I talked to her. I actually did a couple of stories later when I, you know, I went to the New York Times a year later and I did a couple of stories about women in science and talked to her for those over the next years. But it wasn't until 2018 that I went back to, to do this story again that I really knew about her. And her story is really incredible. You know, she, my favorite moment in talking to all these women was when I said, so what, you know, what got you into science? What made you decide to be a scientist? And they all get this sort of like rapturous look in their eyes. And for Nancy, she was a 19 year old junior at Radcliffe, which was the girl's version of Harvard. And she goes, she's, you know, terrified of what she's going to do with her life. She's 19 years old. Her father's died the year before, and she's going to graduate in a year. And she thinks, okay, I'm probably going to marry my boyfriend but I have 10 years until I'm 30 that I can have when I have to have children. So I'm going to do, I want to do something huge. Like I want to, you know, relieve human suffering somehow. She goes to this one hour bio lecture taught by James Watson, who four months earlier with Francis Crick had been awarded the Nobel prize for decoding the structure of DNA. And she falls in love with the idea of genetics and just the promise of genetics and all you can do with this. And so she gets summons up her courage and goes to Watson and said, can I work? says, can I work in your lab? And he says, yeah, sure. He quickly sees that she's got a scientific mind, and he really becomes her mentor and guides her through her early years in science until she actually is offered a job at MIT to study cancer, the genetics of cancer, and she becomes one of the first women hired at MIT. I love how you just put that because there's a lot that's so important about Nancy herself. When she was entering the field, it really was at the right time because everything in genetics was just about to break open. So that worked well for her, right? Yeah, absolutely. So this was um, the early 70s when she starts at MIT, uh, the the discovery of reverse transcriptase or what we now know as retroviruses had happened. And there was the sense that we were going to understand how viruses cause cancer. It didn't actually didn't turn out that viruses cause a lot of cancers, but it was it did it did lead to sort of to some incredibly groundbreaking work, particularly the discovery of on- oncogenes. So yes, it was the right time in science. It was the right time for women because universities were really pursuing affirmative action. And Nixon, it was the start of Nixon's war on cancer. So there was a lot of money. MIT started this whole cancer center just devoted to this. 
Now, when I hear you speak about this, this is something that stands out that you are this tenured journalist, but you have such a grasp on the medical and the technical and the science behind it. So that begs the question, where is that coming from? And <laughs> your your family, they're, they're all scientists, right? Well, yeah, my father's family, my mother was went to law school, which is a story I tell in the book, because she had some she had to sort of go through this very roundabout way to get there. But my father was a physicist, his father was a physicist, his cousin was a physicist, his second cousin, of his, I mean, just like that whole side, my great grandparents on that side, were actually mathematicians and math professors and teachers. So yeah, deep science. But you know, mostly for the book, it was really important to me to get the science right because I knew that it was important to the women that I get the science right because they really do want to be known for their groundbreaking science, not just as sort of the women who kicked up a fuss about discrimination at MIT. And and what a heck of a job you did. I love the <laughs> message here because you're saying to other women, writers, journalists, and people in media that if you dig and if you ha- if you do the research, you're able to do that. I mean, just what you put together in this book and the exceptions, it it reads like it's it's written by somebody that, ha, you know, has that background. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, it was really, it was a journey for me, I will say, and my editor too. I think she was, she considers herself a bit of a science phobe. Um, but yeah. to me, you know, I say that the, the most important way that I could understand this was just kind of seeing it as a story and almost each each um each experiment is sort of like what were they trying to do like what was the yeah. beginning middle and end of this what were they yeah what were they seeking what was the biggest standout that you saw that Nancy expressed to you uh, as a, as a matter of discrimination uh, was it the sexual side was it what, what did that look like yeah it's so interesting because there were a couple of incidents um there's one point early in the book where Francis Crick actually comes in and comes into the lab and he grabs she she notices he's there cuz suddenly his hands are on her breasts and later a colleague does sexually assault her but those episodes as horrible as as they were and as horribly you know as much as we would look at them as totally horrible what really upsets her the most is in in the straw that finally breaks the camel's back for her is she spends a number of years developing this required biology course for MIT which is a favor for the to the biology department because it's a very you know it's, it's a new requirement they really need someone to put it together quickly she does it she's teaching it with another guy they get really high high um ratings from students and then suddenly Nancy's told that she's out of the course and it's because the guy is going to teach it with another man. And those two men are going to write a textbook off of this course and they're going to start a business and they're going to have CD-ROMs and they're going to, you know, teaching videos. And essentially Nancy's out on the street and she begs to be included. And they're sort of like, yeah, 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 whatever. But ultimately they just stall her. And finally it's the end of the semester and she's told she can't teach this course. And she's devastated so much that she writes a letter to the president of MIT. And before she sends the letter to the president of MIT, she actually, she shows it to another woman who she doesn't know very well because none of these women knew each other well. They're all working in different departments or in sort of their little silos. And she shows it to this other woman and the woman actually says, I want to sign this letter. I want to sign this letter. They decide to go to the Dean of Science and ask for a committee to look into disparities for women to, to figure out if women are suffering disparities. And Nancy says at the time, having this course taken away from me was actually more traumatic than the attempted sexual assault by a colleague. I mean, that's really saying something that she felt so violated by this. Let me jump in here because Watkins and Crick, they're known for being discriminating against some of the women that they work with. Wasn't it Rosalind Franklin, who basically was the one who did the x-ray crystallography and saw the double helix 
in her experimentation. And she was completely left out of the picture in terms of a Nobel Prize. I think she... Yeah, yeah she took this critical photograph of double helical structure. Um, that was not, I will say that was not the the only thing that allowed them to identify the double helix. They then had to figure out that these bases, you know, these right, bases right. fit together. Um, however, it was hugely important. It was a huge breakthrough for them. It was kind of, you know, somewhat of an aha moment. But so, so Rosalind Franklin was not included in the Nobel Prize I think mostly because she had died by then and you don't know Nobel Prize is not awarded posthumously. However, she was not given credit at the time either. And when Watson writes his book, she really comes across as this very difficult woman. I think Nancy having, you know, Nancy reads the the draft form of the double helix. And so it gives her this sense that there's a certain kind of woman who is difficult and Nancy doesn't want to be difficult. So as she begins her own career, she's so aware of having uh, the need to get along, the need to cooperate because she doesn't want to appear like a difficult woman like Rosalind Franklin. Right. Well, it's a, it, it's a fascinating book. It's called The Exceptions. And we're speaking with Kate Cernicke, our author here and journalist, and she's uh, done an incredible job documenting this. Now, there was sort of a casual discrimination that just, you know, permeated the 20th century, went through right through the 20th century, right? And, and you know, not to make a defense of the guys, but that was kind of like the, the worldview that women couldn't be scientists. It's just not in their DNA. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? That kind and, of thing. And, how, and how wrong they were. So <laughs> right. I wanted to touch on the true meaning of uh, the title means, the exceptions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because wasn't that Nancy's interpretation is the way that she explained what was happening to herself? Yeah. So she, yes, I call the book The Exceptions partly because these women were exceptional and they kept being described as exceptional. But what really made me glom onto that was, yeah, the way the women described the things that happened to them. It was always, oh, well, that was because of this situation or there was a personality conflict, but that was really only because of X, Y, and Z in this particular circumstance. That was the exception. And, you know, add it all up and you realize it was not the exception, the exception. This was the pattern. This in fact, this in fact was the rule for women in the, in the 20th century. And you're right. You go back and you look at some of the things that people wrote in not so distant past. And you just think, how did we believe this? It was sort of a hidden, hidden anomaly. So Mm. each of the women were kind of in their own silos. And like you said, when Nancy asked, uh, you know, her colleague to to look at it, she wanted to sign off on it. Like, yes, I have had this experience too. They had no idea that the other was in their own silo experiencing that. Yeah, I mean, if you and and it's no surprise when they finally. So she talks to this woman, and and then they go back and they consult the third woman. And they decide they're going to survey every woman. First, I think every woman at MIT. And then they're like, well, that's too much. Let's talk to just the women in science. And they they realize that there's only 15 women with tenure in the whole school of science. And they have to go to the, they take women who are cross-appointed from engineering uh, to, to grow their sample size. But that's really striking. 15 women with tenure at the school of science, 197 men. I mean, it's just like the numbers, the disparity was huge just in terms of who was there. Yes. Another question on that. After MIT acknowledged the discrimination, were there people that were held accountable? What did that look like? 
You know, no. And I think that, that that for the most part, the women did say what we were talking about earlier. This was the culture. It's not, I mean, I won't say it's in the water, but like everyone was doing this. Men and women were doing this. And in some in some ways it was it was benign and unconscious. You know, it was sort of, you know, it was, oh, well, she's a mother, you know, and they think they're doing the right thing, but you know, but no, in fact, these women didn't have children or I mean, I think a lot of this, they could say, well, everyone was doing this. And so therefore we understand, or we understand why it happened. So, yeah, I mean, it really was an early case of unconscious bias that they were talking about. They called it, they call it 21st century discrimination. You know, it's not that the door is closed to women. It's that once you open the door to women, you're treating them differently. You're not giving them equal resources and you're kind of shoving them to the side because maybe you don't think they have as much value. That's an interesting point to women in chemistry, women in engineering. They wanted women to stay away from dangerous materials because if they were in their childbearing years, there could be anomalies with their pregnant, you know, with their upcoming pregnancies. Right. Uh, and they were, you know, that's kind of the way they rationalize that kind of discrimination. Yeah. And even Nancy, you know, she's very, she takes this job at MIT. And then because she knows she's, you know, she's married at this point, she knows she's going to have children. She actually turns the job down because she's afraid that, that working with, um, with viruses is going to somehow hurt her pregnancy. Very quickly, her husband actually takes off. And so she realizes she actually, now she needs to work. So she calls MIT and says, can I take that job after all? But yeah, there was definitely, there were definitely some physical concerns as well. But I don't think that's what was keeping women out of science. I think it really was more the doubts about their intellectual abilities. Right, right. Wow. And I think we still see that today. You know, I mean, even as recently as 2005, when Nancy stood up to Larry Summers, the president of Harvard at the time, who said, you know, there's he, that he he attributed this the lack of women in science and math as, you know, women don't want to work 80 hour weeks and, you know, they lack the intrinsic aptitude to do higher level math. Well, that's just yeah. the numbers just don't bear that out. But people are allowed to say things like that. And we sort of think, oh, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds like what I've heard for all of these years. So it must be true. Well, when I first started teaching in the mid 90s, I taught mm -hmm. at an all girls school. I taught chemistry at an all young women's school. Yeah. And um, I found I found them as intellectually curious as as anyone. And uh, there's some really great stories that I have that I won't burden us with this, <laughs> but how the women went on and went into the biological sciences, molecular sciences, and some even majored in chemistry, which I was very proud to, to hear that they were majoring in chemistry. After that's great. Yeah, that's year. fantastic. Uh, anyway, Kate, I want to be cognizant of your time too. Kate Zernike is here with us, The Exceptions, Nancy Hopkins, MIT, and the Fight for Women in Science. Was there anything else you wanted to ask Kate? And Kate, was there something that we hadn't talked about that you'd like to uh, bring up before we go. I, I mean, I can talk about this all day. So no, you guys should decide. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's a phenomenal read, and I want to encourage everyone to get your hands on it. Uh, the exceptions, and you know, this is a story that I think will continue to be told. What's next for you, Kate? Well, I still cover. I'm still a reporter at the New York Times, and I'm writing about abortion, which of course touches on women's issues. Um, but I really do feel, you know, this book has been a labor of love, and I do think it's really, um, it's still resonant today, not just for women in science, not just for, you know, my book editor likes to say she's going to give it to her 20-something daughter and her mother who's in her 80s, and I really think that there's a lot, there are a lot of commonalities in this story with with other women. Certainly, I, it resonated with me, and that's why I 
devoted these five years of my life to it. I wanted to write a very intimate story about Nancy's experience because I think, as I said, these women were talking about unconscious bias. And at the time, people weren't, we didn't really have much discussion about unconscious bias. Now it's gotten to the point that we talk about it so much that people kind of dismiss it. And they're like, oh yeah, I've, I've heard of that. I did the workplace training. Yeah. I wanted to tell a really intimate story so that people feel what it's like as these you know, as these small things, as these molehills really do develop and become a mountain over the years. Yes. That's the difference between understanding something as an observer rather than a player. Yeah. Player perspective. Absolutely. Well, once again, I want to thank you so much for speaking with us today. Kate Cernicke, her book, The Exceptions, and really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for for joining us and have a great day. It's been fun. Thank you.